ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Revealing the hidden secrets of the sea. This is Naked Oceans. Welcome to Naked Oceans, a brand new podcast that takes the naked scientists into the underwater realm. Each month we'll be venturing beneath the waves to bring you the very latest in ocean science and conservation. We'll meet top marine experts who will tell us what we know about how the oceans work, the problems they face, and give us some ideas of things we can do to help protect them. We'll also head out and about to the edge of the sea and beyond to bring the oceans to your ears. I'm Helen Scales, and with me each month to help navigate the waters of naked oceans is Sarah Caster-Perry. Hi, Sarah. Hello. To launch the maiden voyage of naked oceans, we're looking into the impacts of oil spills on the marine environment. We'll find out how oil in the Gulf of Mexico could be making matters even worse for the already threatened wetlands of Louisiana, and how scientists are studying the impact of oil on food webs in the open ocean. And we'll head to the Welsh coast to find out how the marine ecosystem there is getting on more than a decade after 70,000 tonnes of oil spilled out of the Sea Empress oil tanker. You can imagine how I felt when I came down here the morning after the spill and found these rock pools completely covered in 10 centimetres of North Sea crude oil. That was Robin Crump who will be telling us more about how the oil spill changed life between the tides. Also this month, we'll find out how scientists have uncovered drug-resistant superbugs lurking inside sharks in the open ocean. We'll catch up with some dazzling, glowing corals, and we'll find out about a cost-effective way of giving coral reefs a helping hand on the road to recovery. And stay tuned to hear the very first episode of our regular feature that we've cunningly called Critter of the Month. Each month on Naked Oceans, we'll be tracking down a marine expert and asking them to tell us if they were a marine creature, which would they be and why? We'll let them choose any species they like, living or extinct, plant, animal, bacteria, anything at all, as long as it hangs out for at least part of its life in the oceans. This month, we caught up with Carl Safina from the Blue Ocean Institute and asked him to choose our first critter for us. Unlike most other fish, it's warm-blooded, so it's really kind of the king of the fish. We'll find out later on in the show which species he chose and why. And if you've got any questions about the oceans for us, do get in touch through Twitter. It's at Naked Oceans. Or you can send us an email to nakedoceans at thenakedscientists.com. Supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation, this is Naked Oceans. On the web at nakedscientists.com slash oceans. Well, let's get things started with a roundup of some of the latest news from the ocean world. First up, scientists have made the worrying discovery that some sharks harbour superbugs in their guts, and they are resistant to many of our antibiotics, suggesting that our discarded medicines are making their way into the oceans and meddling with food webs. 
Jason Blackburn from the University of Florida led a large team of researchers who went out and collected samples of bacteria living inside seven shark species, including bull sharks, lemon sharks, nurse sharks, as well as a bony fish called redfish. Now, back in the lab, they tested the bacterial cultures for resistance to a range of human antibiotics, including penicillin, chloramphenicol and doxycycline, which is used by many people as an anti-malarial drug. Well, their findings, published this month in the Journal of Zoo and Wildlife Medicine, show that in each study site, including Belize, Florida and Massachusetts in the US, fish were carrying bacteria that were resistant to at least one of these drugs. And in some cases, the bugs were surviving multiple antibiotics. Now, this isn't just bad news for the sharks, which could face nasty infections from virulent strains of bacteria, but it could also pose something of a health risk to people as well. Around the world, sharks are arriving in increasing numbers on our dinner plates, although sometimes we don't actually realise it because they're given other names. People don't perhaps like to think they're eating sharks, but you are if you eat hus, greyfish, and in Italy they sell the vitello di mare, the veal of the sea. And that's not to mention many of the other fish that sharks themselves feed on, and they could also be harbouring some drug-resistant bacteria. Yeah, that's really worrying because you often hear a lot about the overuse of antibiotics in livestock making sort of really bad antibiotic-resistant strains of bacteria in things like chickens. But it's really bad that stuff that is designed for us could be getting out into a wider food chain that we don't even know about. That's kind of scary. Well, we'll move on now to a slightly more upbeat story about the marine world, uh, a story about how marine species can lend a hand to other areas of biological research. Scientists have reported in Nature that a fluorescent protein called, wait for it, it's quite a mouthful, M. iris FP, that was originally isolated from the reef-building coral Lobophilia, is ideal for high-resolution microscopy. Now, fluorescent proteins like GFP, or green fluorescent protein, originally isolated from a species of jellyfish called the crystal jelly, have been in use since about the mid-90s. They've allowed a massive breakthrough in the study of cellular function because unlike other microscopy stains that are really toxic to cells, GFP and similar proteins like this new M-IRIS-FP can safely be used in living cells. The gene that codes for the fluorescent protein is inserted into the genome of the cell or the organism to be studied so that when a particular protein is produced by the cell, the fluorescent protein is expressed as well and it acts like a tag to track the protein's position and movement in cells and whole animals. So, for example, you could look at the distribution of a particular protein in the brain during embryonic development. Now, what's really exciting about this new fluorescent marker protein, M-IRIS-FP, is that it can be photo-switched to emit either red or green light. The Nature paper's author, Jochen Fuchs, and his team showed that the marker allowed them to track dynamic processes in living cells at high resolution. Now, obviously, there's a lot of computing power going on in this sort of microscope work, and the researchers had to genetically modify the protein to give it the exact properties they wanted. But it's pretty cool that life in the oceans continues to throw up new surprises and new avenues of improving research. And it really just goes to show how we need to protect the oceans and all the creatures we haven't discovered yet, because we don't know how they might be useful for us in the future as well. Well, talking of corals, we've also got news this month of a cost-effective way of giving coral reefs a helping hand towards recovery. Coral restoration is a bit of a hot topic in ocean conservation for quite a long time now, with people coming up with various ways to give reefs a helping hand to recover from damage. And it's an approach to conservation that attracts its fair share of critics. Some people think that we shouldn't really need to meddle with nature if we can deal with the causes of reef disturbance, then perhaps the ecosystem really should be able to restore itself. 
Well, whatever your views on these matters, there's an interesting new paper by Graham Forrester from the University of Rhode Island in the US showing that there can be tangible benefits from collecting fragments of broken coral that have been ripped off by storms and then by physically reattaching them to reefs, it helps them to recover. Well, collaborating with teams of students from local residents in the British Virgin Islands, the researchers worked on the endangered elkhorn coral, and that's a species that's doing really badly across the Caribbean after it was nearly wiped out by disease 20 years ago. Forrester and the team found that around 40% of transplanted corals were still alive four years later, even though storms and coral bleaching events had also come along and hit the area. They fixed fragments in place using underwater cement and plastic cable ties, and this prevented them from rolling around on the seabed and getting damaged and scraped. Now, the good thing about this sort of approach to reef restoration is that it's relatively simple and cheap, and it doesn't involve breaking fragments of healthy coral from intact reefs, because that's a tactic that some other restoration projects take, and it's a little bit controversial, perhaps. And while we probably won't ever be able to replant large areas of reef, that's really just a bit unfeasible, this does at least give us some way of local reef enhancement to give corals on a smaller scale a better chance of standing up to many of the problems that the oceans face today. That's great news that it's a cheaper way of doing it because often this sort of restoration can be quite expensive and the reefs may be in an area where there's not the money to spend a lot on restoration. So it's, it's nice to find something that's, you know, cost effective. Um, Another way, of course, of helping marine ecosystems cope with big global problems like climate change is to create marine reserves where we keep out as many sources of damage and degradation as we can, like fishing, coastal development and so on. So finally, this month, uh, the Environmental and Cultural Protection Group Parks Canada have made history by creating a marine conservation area with a difference. The difference being that it doesn't just cover the ocean, but also includes the mountains stretching 4,000 feet above it. The Guayhanas National Marine Reserve off the coast of British Columbia in Western Canada is a project that's been 25 years in the making. Now the 3,500 kilometre area will be protected with only very limited human use like small-scale fishing allowed. Parks Canada's aim for the reserve is to balance protection and sustainable use and increase public understanding, appreciation and enjoyment of the marine heritage of the area. So it's a really exciting step. It really is exciting um, because we've got so far to go with marine protection and marine reserves globally. Um, We think perhaps less than 1% of the oceans is currently under some form of protection and experts scratch their heads and think well actually we should be aiming at something more like 30 percent so there's a really long way to go but projects like this just are really encouraging that we're at least heading down the right road and you can find out more about this story and all of our other news stories on our website at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans making waves about the underwater world this is naked oceans Now, the issue of oil spills and the environmental problems they can unleash have barely left the news headlines for the past few months, with events unfolding in the Gulf of Mexico following an explosion at the Deepwater Horizon oil rig. Much of the news coverage was about impacts on big, charismatic species like marine birds, turtles, dolphins and so on, as well as the economic fallout from the spill following contamination of local fisheries. But there are other less obvious and potentially very important impacts oil can have when it washes up on the shore. I spoke to Robinson Fulweiler from Boston University to find out more about how oil can affect crucial coastal ecosystems. Marshes and mangroves are full of amazing creatures um, and their homes 
you know, things like barnacles and sponges, fish and crabs, um, even muskrats, and of course, millions and millions of birds, right? So in Louisiana, one of my favorite birds is the roseate spoonbill. Um, and this bird has a pale yellow head and then this beautiful white neck, and the rest of it is all kind of hot pink. Um, beyond all of that kind of visual things that we li- might like to see, they have a lot of things that are important that we probably don't notice offhand. They're um, primary nursery habitat for lots of important um, fish species, both commercial and things, you know, so things we like to eat and sell, and then they provide the homes for a lot of the um, base of food webs. And then they're important for things that we kind of call these ecosystem values. So they do things like um, they help us with flood mitigation, right? So you can think of a wetland like a giant sponge. So when you have lots of water coming in, these wetlands can kind of um, soak up that water and, and help us with floods. Then both wetlands and mangroves are really important for storm abatement and um, stopping storm surges and um, waves coming in, right? So things like tsunamis, even mangroves are really are, are good at sort of slowing down those kind of waves. And then um, I think the thing that I'm probably most interested in is the idea of wetlands and mangroves being important for water quality. So not only can you think of a wetland as a sponge, but you can kind of think of it as a giant filter, too. And there's lots of microbial processes that go on in in wetlands that actually clean up our, our water. And in terms of that nutrient removal, how does that actually happen? Where do the nutrients go? Yeah, so you can think of it just like this. So the water's flowing through the wetlands, and it's bringing with it sediments and all these nutrients. And the sediment can get trapped sort of in the plants themselves, in the leaves and the and the, the stalks, right? And then the nutrients can get taken up either by the vegetation or by the microbial community that's living in those sediments. Um, and the microbes can, you know, they use them for energy, they're using them for food, um, and they convert them into sort of their own biomass, right? So they actually can absorb these nutrients. And one process that we are particularly interested in is this um, something called denitrification. So in denitrification, there's a group of organisms that take nitrate, which is NO3, and one of those um, nutrients that come in through um, fertilizer, right, and wastewater treatment, that kind of thing. And they turn it into N2 gas. And by doing that, they're essentially taking it from this usable form to a gas that's basically unusable to the majority of organisms um, on the planet. And so they've actually removed it from the system. And since humans add lots of nitrogen um, to the natural system in terms of fertilizer or wastewater treatment, we need these microbes to kind of clean up our act, if you will. And uh, what do we know about how oil contamination might affect those microbes? Is it toxic to them? So, you know, it's kind of one of those things um, where we're probably not 100% sure. So most of the work that's been done on looking at the effect of oil on the, on denitrification um, has been done sort of in the 80s and early 90s, and they found that in most cases the oil was toxic to them, but they weren't able to separate completely if it was a direct effect of sort of toxicity to the, the cell itself or if it was because it changed the environmental conditions in which they live and then sort of made the habitat not ideal for them. So presumably, if we see wetlands losing their ability to mop up nutrients, we could also see some of the existing problems in the Gulf of Mexico, like the dead zone, get much worse. 
Right, exactly. And I and so I, I just saw a couple of days ago that they reported that the dead zone this year was the largest, one of the largest that it's ever been, about 20,000 square kilometers. And so that's actually equal to the size of Massachusetts, where I, I currently live, right, the state of Massachusetts. So that's that's a huge dead zone. And that's absolutely true. So the thought there is that the Mississippi, you know, used to, used to flood every year and flow over to the banks and would um, allow the sediment and nutrients to go into the marsh and the marsh could do its nutrient filtering thing that it does so well. Plus, we had a lot less nitrogen coming in at that point um, before we levied the Mississippi River. But now we we keep the river sort of on a pipe right all the way to the coast, and we don't allow it to overflow into the marsh. And so we're kind of we've cut off this natural filtering capacity. So that's bad for the marsh because it needs nutrients and sediment to grow, and we and we don't give it that anymore. Um, and then it's bad for the coastal area and the dead zone because we're directly transporting this nutrient-rich water from all the you know the farm belt in the U.S. out into the Gulf of Mexico. Now we passed the 100-day mark after the Deepwater Horizon explosion, and there was a lot of talk about how the spill was perhaps not such a terrible ecological disaster as we'd all feared initially. Do you think we should still be concerned about the impact of oil in the region? Absolutely. So I think the the first thing is that Louisiana's wetlands have been in trouble for a long time, and the last thing they sort of needed was this oil spill. So we lose an area of wetland about the size of a tennis court every something like 30 seconds or something in Louisiana. So because of how the system is set up, it's losing a lot of salt marsh to, to sea level rise. Plus, we've already gone in there and, and done things like um, we've put a lot of piping for, for the oil and, and gas industry underneath the salt marsh, so that's sort of di- that's disrupted it. We've removed things like water and gas from underneath the salt marsh, so it's a, um, for underneath the wetlands, so they're actually you know sinking. And then we had things like um, Hurricane Katrina, right, that came in and, and really caused some serious damage. I think that... Uh, we all keep our fingers crossed that the oil spill is not a disaster and that it would go away and, and, and wouldn't be a problem. But I think that if we look at some of the work that people have done on, on some of the big oil spills, like the Exxon Valdez oil spill and stuff, a lot of the sort of acute effects um, seem to go away relatively quickly. So a lot of birds and mammals died and then we didn't see anything. And so I think people you know, tend to think it's okay. But there are issues with chronic low-level exposure to oil. I think we sort of definitely hope that it's not going to be as bad as we all imagine, but I, I think it's much too early to say that. That's Robinson Fulweiler from Boston University talking about the Louisiana wetlands and the vital hidden world of microbes. Are there really plenty more fish in the sea? Find out with Naked Oceans on the web at nakedscientist.com oceans. This is Naked Oceans with Helen Scales and Sarah Castor-Perry. On February the 15th, 1996, at 8 o'clock in the evening, the Sea Empress oil tanker ran aground just off the coast of Pembrokeshire in southwest Wales. In the week that followed, 70,000 tonnes of North Sea light crude oil spilled out, affecting 120 miles of shoreline and some of the UK's most important and biodiverse coastal habitats. The oil killed tens of thousands of seabirds and affected 26 protected areas known as Sites of Special Scientific Interest, or SSSIs. I went along to West Angle Bay, one of the worst-hit beaches, to meet local ecologist Robin Crump to find out more about how the coastline is getting on 14 years after the spill. Well, if you look on the underside of this stone, you'll see that um, there are two starfish here. One is the big green one, which is Asterina gibbosa, the common one, and it's 
commonly found on the shore. And then there's a little tiny one here. Can you see? It's dark green with a, a chocolate brown substar on the back. And this is a, a very rare species called Asterina phylactica. And a colleague and I described it as a new species in 1978. You can imagine how I felt when I came down here the morning after the spill and found these rock pools completely covered in 10 centimetres of North Sea crude oil. All the pools were affected. The upper shore pools were almost pure oil. The ones with the starfish in had a surface layer of oil which completely covered them, and I really thought they'd all be killed. In fact, something strange happened. Only the small Asterina phylactica, the rare one, turned out to be very susceptible to oil, and all but five died. By June, we could only find five animals left. Whereas only the baby Asterina gibbosa died, and they, uh, adults of Asterina gibbosa, the common one, then uh, laid eggs, and there was a huge population explosion. So one benefited from the oil, and the other one was almost wiped out. Now, this Asterina phylactica is very rare. At that time, there were only six sites for it in Britain. And so we were very concerned to uh, try and ensure that it survived and so uh, carried on monitoring the pools every month. And in uh, June, um, after the spill, uh, I took one animal which was sitting on eggs, it already laid its eggs and was brooding them, took it on its stone into the lab. It hatched out 50 babies. I put them back and it's never looked back. The species now is more common than it was before the spill just with a little help from its friend. Asterina gibbosa, interestingly, as the numbers of Asterina phylactica grew to nearly a 1,000, gibbosa became less and less common. And there is intense competition between these two species for space on the shore. But at least the species has survived at this site. And because it became quite famous over the oil spill, uh, people have looked for it elsewhere, and there are now 20 or 30 sites for it in Britain. So, Robin, you, you know these shores probably better than anyone else. You've been here studying these, these shores for decades. But you were also here to study the changes after the oil spill. And quite an interesting story unfolded. And a central character were, were these chaps, the limpets. Can you tell us more about that? Well, that's right. We often call the limpet the rabbit of the shore because limpets graze across the surface of the rocks. You can actually see their feeding marks here on the rock, this zigzag trail of scratches, uh, where they're scraping off the algae. Now, they're also very susceptible to oil. They're not generally killed by it, but it sends them to sleep. So they relax their hold, fall off the rocks, and then either the gulls come down and eat them, or they get washed away by the waves and, and die that way. And so there was a huge mortality of limpets here at West Angle Bay. It was the most important effect of the spill from an ecological point of view. Because once you remove the limpets, then it gives free rain to the seaweeds to grow. And this shore you're looking at here, if you look along, you'll see it's grey-white now with limpets and barnacles. But six months after the spill, it was completely covered in green algae, which had come in and there were just not enough limpets left to eat it off. The next year, in came the brown algae, and you had a lovely thing called Fucus vesiculosus variety linearis, the bladderless bladderack, which covered the whole shore, uh, all the way through the middle shore. 
And that, of course, then acted as a habitat for other animals. So you've got flat periwinkles and other things which never normally grow on these exposed outer shores in Pembrokeshire, suddenly coming in and invading this new ecosystem. So by removing one keystone species, the limpid, you actually affect the whole ecosystem. But the limpets came back? Oh yes, well limpets have uh, planktonic larvae. And so the next year, uh, once the oil had been washed off more or less by the waves, then you got a resettlement of young limpets coming in. But it, and then another interesting thing was the limpet, the few limpets that had survived grew to enormous size because they had a huge amount of food each. Normally they're kept small because they're half starved. But because there were so few of them, they got to, well, some of the biggest limpets in Britain, seven centimetres long. But then you had a lot of young limpets coming in, settling in amongst the base of the seaweed. After about four years, the seaweed dies anyway of old age and is smashed off the rocks by the waves, and then the limpets begin to grow and grow, and now we're back to a situation where most of the limpets here, you'll see, are quite small, perhaps only two centimetres long. So with your expert eyes, can you look at this shore and see a, a fingerprint of the oil spill, or does it really look much as it did 14 years ago before this all happened? It's quite incredible to me the way the shore has recovered, I'll be honest. When I stood here 14 years ago, I thought it was the end of my teaching career here because we use this all the time. Not a bit of it. In fact, uh, in some ways, the shore is almost richer now than it was for some species than it was before the spill. And generally speaking, looking around you, the shore looks very much as it did before the spill happened. Having said that, of course, we don't know about genetic effects on organisms or possibly tiny trace elements of poisons which may still be in the system. But to the naked eye and to an amateur biologist like me, it looks just as good as it's ever done. It really was so good to see the thriving biodiversity on the coast after such a potentially dreadful disaster. That was Robin Crump, former head of the Orielton Field Centre in Pembrokeshire, introducing me to some of the survivors of the Sea Empress oil spill. Now, oil spills don't just affect the coasts and the shorelines that they wash up on, although they may be what we see more of on the news. They can also cause important changes out at sea. I spoke with Amy Hirons from Nova Southeastern University in Florida to find out about the effects of oil in the pelagic realm. Well, I'm a biological oceanographer, and my interests really stem with looking at how ocean production or food is transferred from the smallest organisms, the phytoplankton, the plants, and the zooplankton, the animals, and how that's passed through the food web in the ocean all the way to apex predators. The method that I use is utilizing stable isotope ratios. A lot of people understand or at least have heard of radioisotopes, which naturally decay over time, such as carbon-14, which can be used for dating. Stable isotope is somewhat similar, except it doesn't decay. And so it's used as a natural tracer. There are stable isotopes of many elements, such as carbon and nitrogen. So I can actually take a piece of tissue or bone or sediment and combust the example, and I use a mass spectrometer then to look at the ratio of heavier and lighter isotopes, such as carbon or nitrogen. That provides this information on many different levels. 
one, uh, basically who's eating whom. With nitrogen, carbon can actually give us information about geographic locations. If an organism is found in the near shore in the estuarine environment versus offshore in the pelagic, or whether it's pelagic in the open water versus benthic on the ocean floor. So by tracing the carbon isotopes, you're effectively tracing the impacts of oil spills through the food chain. Yes, and by working with environmental chemists who can look at various fractions of the petroleum product itself and then comparing that to the same kind of components of cells of fish and invertebrates and plankton, we can determine if certain components of petroleum are truly being incorporated physiologically in an organism and then being passed on through the food web. Previous work that I did after the Exxon Valdez oil spill in Prince William Sand, Alaska, indicated that for many different organisms, there were different impacts. Certainly, there was the external, the direct impacts of reduced primary production because there wasn't the phytoplankton able to stay in the water column and synthesize, photosynthesize. But then there were fish that developed ulcers and tumors. There were decreased numbers of populations of various organisms, such as stellar sea lions and harbor seals that we began to be concerned that this carbon and other elements or other components of petroleum products were actually being incorporated and damaging the cells of these organisms. And that is our major concern right now is that we don't have a lot of information about some of the detrimental impacts, particularly at the base of the food web in the phytoplankton and the zooplankton. And of course, it's not just the oil that's having effects, it's how we're dealing with the oil as well. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, Many oil companies use a chemical dispersant to help break apart the oil, much like a dish detergent is added to a sink full of dirty dishes that may have oil deposits to help break apart the oil or the little globs. So BP has been using their own chemical dispersant called Corexit. And they've been releasing it at the source of the oil from the Deepwater Horizon. What most people don't know, as far as I am aware, is what impact that dispersant is actually going to have on the cellular level of different organisms. So where we've been talking about the potential impact of petroleum and how it's traced through the food web, we don't know about the chemical dispersant. And that also could be having detrimental effects to a degree that we just don't know. So what do you think, I mean, obviously with the the spill in the Gulf of Mexico, do you think it's going to be, we're going to be seeing the impact and the accumulation of the oil from that in seals, seabirds, that sort of thing in years to come? I absolutely believe that to be the case based on uh, what we've seen in other locations like Prince William Sound. Another serious impact that the oil can have, not just on the phytoplankton and the zooplankton, but uh, juveniles, those organisms that have recently been hatched or spawned at the time of the oil spill from the Deepwater Horizon was also a similar timing that many organisms actually spawn. So we have the water column is now full of developing ichthyoplankton or baby fish that may be impacted. We may lose year classes of fish or invertebrates. Um, We just don't know at this point. It's just too early to tell. Because I suppose most people, you see on the news the impacts with seabirds and the large-sized animals, but people don't necessarily think that 
the impact on the microscopic life out in the open ocean? Oftentimes my concern is that people have this out-of-sight, out-of-mind feeling about oil or an oil spill. People tend to not think about what they can't see. That's human nature, I believe. And again, I've repeated it several times. They're the base of the food web. Without the phytoplankton and the zooplankton, you don't have anything else in the ocean. And that's why it's critical for us to find out what the impact of petroleum products are having. That was Amy Hirons from Nova Southeastern University in Florida talking to me about how the contamination from oil spills can be traced in the open ocean and the damage it can cause. Well, speaking with with Amy as well as uh, with Robinson earlier, we're getting this feeling that we really have no idea yet just what the fallout ecologically is going to be from the the Deepwater Horizon disaster and and what the Gulf of Mexico will be like in the years to come. And just because perhaps the oil seems to have disappeared, visually we can't see so much of it, there's still a lot going on there. And I think we're just going to have to keep watching this space for the next couple of years, if decades even, to see what the effect is going to be, especially in the Gulf, which already facing so many other threats already. Well, exactly. I mean, Amy was stressing to me that it's really a case of we just don't know how things are going to pan out for a lot of species, right from the plankton right up to the top of the food chain. And it's, it is a case of watch this space. And, you know, hopefully there'll be ways of ameliorating the damage, but it, it's definitely something that needs a lot more research. Well, that's almost it for the show. But before we go, it's time to find out what our critter of the month is. Every month on Naked Oceans, we track down a top oceans expert to tell us if they were a marine critter, what would they be and why. Let's find out who we caught this month. I'm Carl Safina. I'm an author and president of Blue Ocean Institute at Stony Brook University. And the species that I would like to be is a bluefin tuna. It's a huge fish. It's one of the strongest fish in the sea, one of the fastest. And um, unlike most other fish, it's warm-blooded, so it's really kind of the king of the fish. I've seen these fish many times throughout my life, and I've always thought it was thrilling to watch them ripping through the surface and exploding as they chase their prey. And it looked very powerful, but also like a lot of fun. So they seem to really be in command, and it seemed like the kind of thing that if you could come back as a, as a fish, that would be the one I would want to be. Brilliant. Bluefin tuna really are amazing and majestic creatures. That was Carl Safina choosing our very first Critter of the Month. The bluefin tuna will be joined by many more ocean species as we ask a new marine expert each month to tell us which species they would be and why. Well, I'm afraid our time is up for this first episode of Naked Oceans, but do join us next time when we'll be looking at climate change in the oceans. What changes have we already seen? How is it affecting marine life? And what are the prospects for the future? We'll also be taking a sneaky peek at some amazing animals that live in chilly Antarctic waters. It just remains for me to say a huge thank you to Robinson Fulweiler, Robin Crump, Amy Hirons and Carl Safina. And thanks to you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, we'd love to hear from you. Get tweeting. We're on Twitter at Naked Oceans. Or you can email us. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com. And you can find out more information about this month's show at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Until next time, it's goodbye from Sarah and from me. Goodbye. Naked Oceans is produced by The Naked Scientists and supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation. For more information, look them up online at saveourseas.com.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>